This is Ian Freebairn-Smith, and on behalf of the board, I welcome you to another ASMAC podcast. What you're about to hear is a recording of one of our monthly luncheon presentations recorded at Catalina's Jazz Club in Hollywood. These podcasts feature leading Hollywood composers, arrangers, orchestrators, and musicians talking about their lives and music. Today, our uh, special guest, we have great composer, arranger, conductor. Here to introduce him, if you guys can bring paid tribute, is our ASMAC Vice President, Ray Charles. Look at him, he walks. Uh, John Altman. Let's see, I met John Altman how many years ago at the Vine Street Bar and Grill when his uncle, uh, Wolfie Phillips, brought him along to a luncheon. And since then, I have discovered such amazing things about him. If you got, if you read your email, you saw his resume, which is really awe-inspiring. But besides that, he must have the largest collection of old movie musicals, which he has taped in England, and he cut out all the story and he has all the musical numbers. And anything, I don't know if Wheeler and Woolsey needs anything to you, but he has musicals with Wheeler and Woolsey and Jack Haley. And uh, he probably has Gloria Swanson singing. Anyway, he is the most consummate musician and uh, tells wonderful stories. Well, you'll hear. And I'd like to introduce my friend, the Brit. John Altman. I'm losing them already, I think. Uh, <laughs> uh, we, we did a big band gig several years ago, and um, it was for a, a launch of a photographic exhibition somewhere in London, and uh, we played the first eight bars, and my second trombone player turned to my first trombone player and said, I think we've lost them. <laughs> Uh, I, was, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day, and he said he was about to uh, do a charity concert. And he said, I, I don't really like doing them because half the audience are sitting there thinking they can do, do it better than I can, and the other half have a nephew who can. Um, I, I sort of feel a bit that way today, just looking out at the people here. I'm thinking, well, you know, what on earth am I going to say that's going to be of any interest to some of, some of my heroes and heroines and people that I've idolized all my life? So um, I'm just really going to tell a few stories about uh, how I came into this business and uh, some of the odd quirks of fate that have led me along the way. Um, my show business debut, according to the resume, was uh, appearing on stage with Judy Garland at the London Palladium at the age of three. But um, I, I actually predate that because uh, half of my milk ration, and there aren't any Brits here to remember that uh, we had milk rationing in the, in the late 40s, um, half of my milk ration went to John Bowles to treat his ulcer. So that was my first contribution to show business, uh, keep, keeping John Bowles in a fit state to sing the desert song every night at London Palladium. Um, 
my family were musical. My four uncles, my mother's four brothers, were all band leaders in the UK. And um, I really was aware of music virtually when I was aware of existence, I guess. It was, um, I can't remember not being surrounded by music. And uh, it certainly helped having Sid, Sid Phillips and Wolf Phillips as my, my uncles. Uh, Sid, for those of you who aren't familiar with his name, was the chief arranger for the Ambrose Orchestra in the UK, a wonderful arranger. And uh, Wolf, of course, who many people would have known, was um, the band leader of the London Palladium, but also was a staff arranger at Campbell Canelli at the age of 14, um, understudying his, his brother. And uh, both of them were completely self-taught, which uh, I have to own up to the fact that I also am completely self-taught, uh, having given up any form of musical formal education at the age of 11. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> Um, I guess I, I became aware of music through the family 78 collection and I don't actually remember my, either of my parents particularly playing music at home. So I, I think it was really me discovering these shiny 78s and sticking them on the gramophone and uh, getting to know them very intimately at a very young age. So I formulated very peculiar tastes uh, for a, a seven or eight year old growing up in what was, I suppose, the era of Elvis Presley and um, novelty songs like uh, Singing the Blues and I'm a Pink Toothbrush and all those things. Um, I was listening to uh, Paul Whiteman uh, playing Darktown Struthers Ball with Jack T. Gardens trombone solo and uh, Adrian Rolini and uh, the Man City Blue Blowers and the Basie Band playing Texas Shuffle. And it was quite an eccentric sort of uh, upbringing, really, that led me into music. And I, I started playing saxophone in my teens. And uh, within a few years, I was, I was making records while still studying to be what I eventually became which was uh, a lecturer in English and American literature at London University. Um, so I'm sure you're wondering what on earth has turned me to, to doing what I'm doing now. But um, I somehow had accrued the paraphernalia of writing arrangements, and I, I'm really not sure how I did it. I think it was just the fact that my ear developed at a very young age, and. Uh, I could memorize entire arrangements and I could always hear what was going on in them as well, which was uh, something I didn't realize until I sat down and started transcribing for my, you know, for my own pleasure almost, just writing out what I was hearing. And this was something that Wolf could do as well. He, he could sit down and 60 years later, he could sing an entire arrangement as, as it came on the radio of something he'd never heard since 1935. So um, I began arranging and playing sax, and I was around on the, 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 the pop scene and the blues scene in the UK. Uh, one amazing story from the time, I think, was uh, I 
when I first formed the band, or joined the band at the age of 13, uh, it was during the height of what was known as the blues boom in the UK, where a lot of groups like the Rolling Stones were rediscovering the older Chicago bluesmen and uh, sort of rehashing their music. So my first band basically played uh, the Muddy Waters songbook. Um, if we flash forward eight years to my 21st birthday, uh, we played the same Muddy Waters songbook at my birthday party, but uh, with Muddy Waters singing, which was quite an extraordinary thing for a, a 21-year-old in the UK. Um, I, I then somehow deviated into joining the group Hot Chocolate. I'm not quite sure how that happened, but they, they were very popular at the time. And I became their arranger by default, because they, they had some charts done for their stage act and they didn't like them, and uh, came to me and said, could you rewrite these? And I said, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll, I'll do something. So they liked them and they played them, and I started getting record work, and suddenly here I am, a fully-fledged arranger, without really any pretense of deciding I wanted to be one. Um, I then started working for the BBC, and I know some, some people here worked for the BBC and did, did some arrangements for them. But it was a very curious setup because um, I don't know if anything similar happened here, but the BBC paid arrangers by the bar of music. Did, was that the case here at all with the, anybody? Yeah. It did happen, yeah. Um, I mean, we had this extraordinary situation where we were writing for um, variety shows like the, the two Robins and Morecambe and Wise show, which I'm sure people here would have heard of. And all the up-tempo tunes were arranged in one four time signature. <laughs> and uh, all the ballads were arranged in 4-4, but um, in cut common, so something like uh, where or when would be it seems we've stood and, uh, and uh, the, the music stands, were, the people were sitting there with sort of nine music stands ranged round and uh, you never wrote repeats because you didn't get paid for repeats. You, you got paid for the arrangement. So I remember one one show we were doing where the um, somebody had written a, a da capo, um, and it was probably you know on page seventy four. And this poor drummer, I think he needed neck surgery because he suddenly went <laughs> to, to get back to the beginning. Um, and that was the BBC. They also had something called consultation fees, which was a very mysterious notion. Um, the idea was that you, if you wrote an arrangement, you had to consult with the composer, with the choreographer, with the director of the show. And these consultation fees were paid at a certain amount per hour. Um, I remember writing an arrangement for, um, I think it might have been for Telly Savalas actually, for a TV show. And when I finished and I totted up the bars, 
uh, I think the fee came to the equivalent of six dollars, something, something like that. So I rang the BBC office and I said, look, you know, this really is ridiculous. This, you know, how on earth can I make any money on this? And the woman at the BBC said, well, your consultation fees. And I said, but I haven't consulted with anyone. And she said, well, you must have talked to the director. I said, well, I think I, think I had a five-second phone call, you know, and this is by the hour. Um, she said, well, what about the artist? You know, I said, well, I haven't spoken to the artist. She said, well, sit down and think about it and, you know, write it down. And so I thought the certain thing. I thought, well, um, okay, well, the director, well, that was eight hours, definitely. Um, <laughs> then I had maybe 27 hours of talking to the, to the uh, director of the show and another 14 hours for the choreographer. I put in a bill for 94 hours of consultation and they paid it. <laughs> so it was quite extraordinary, but I, I guess that that's what the BBC, God bless it, in its uh, heyday of bureaucracy chose to do. Um, but around about that time, I, I, I was hired to work on a, a TV series which uh, many of you will probably know, called uh, Miss Marple, the Agatha Christie series, which is still showing. Um, and it's still just very popular all over the world. And um, the composer who was hired is a charming, lovely, erudite man who basically had written a lot of pop hits in the 60s. And he knew the chord of C, a minor, F, and G. And that was it. Um, he would also try and helpfully give me notations that said things like funny chord. And <laughs> so I, I would listen to the tape, which was him playing along to the picture, but sometimes he would fall behind when the scene changed. So he would hastily sort of speed up to get to the next scene. Um, and the funny chord turned out to be diminished, but uh, there are also great periods in, if you've seen the Miss Marple series, somebody always gets murdered and there's always a body lying around and, and there's your stabbing music, which, is, uh, which consists of him pounding the piano with both fists ferociously for about a minute and a half. So, um, I'm, try I'm trying to make sense of this, so I, I, I basically said, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm prepared to take on doing this show, um, but I want a screen credit as, as an arranger, and I have to say that uh, the producer of the show was a gentleman called John Hawksworth, who produced Upstairs, Downstairs, and the Duchess of Duke Street, and was one of the most eminent uh, television people ever. A really, really charming man, but very powerful in those days. And I was sent the end titles to score, and uh, as I was writing it, um, I noticed that I didn't have my name on the credits. So I rang the BBC and said, um, I thought we had agreed that I would have a musical director credit at the end of the show. And the person at the beginning, I'll never forget the exact words, is we would never do something like that for a music arranger. 
Those are his exact words. So I, I didn't quite know what to do. I, I was maybe 20, 27, 28, something like that. Um, no experience of um, in any situation of that sort. So I rang John Hawksworth because I couldn't think of what else to do. And I said to, to him, uh, I'm really sorry to bother you, but uh, I noticed that I don't have a credit at the end of the show. And I did, you know, specifically, I'm not being paid much to do it. I, I, I really wanted one and I'm very disappointed. <laughs> I, mean, I can't imagine doing this. Now, or my agent would certainly be doing that sort of thing. But um, uh, John Hawksworth said immediately, leave it with me. And uh, about two days later, uh, a second parcel arrived with end credits with my name on it. So we were at the screening of the first episode, and I went up to him and I said, um, thank you so much for... Uh, interceding, but uh, if you don't mind my asking, what exactly did you say to them? He said, oh, it's very simple. He said, uh, I rang the BBC and said, if this man doesn't get his credit, I'm withdrawing the programme. <laughs> now, whether he would have or not, I don't know, but I, mean, I always thought that was a wonderful thing, that, you know, the opposite to the kick in the teeth that the music arrangers usually got. And uh, I never forget him for that, and I thought that was a, a, a wonderful gesture. And it's why, if you see those Miss Marples on TV now, which they're still showing all the time, you'll actually see my credit on there. And it's the only instance of a BBC drama with an arranger credit, and that's thanks to John Hawksworth. Um, so I. I started getting really busy doing British television around that time. It was a golden era for British TV, and uh, I got to work with some great directors and, and um, actors and, and technicians, and BBC drama was, in those days, second to none. And I got a call to uh, orchestrate some music for a movie. I mean, the, the first movie I ever did uh, was a film called Just a Gigolo. Uh, it was directed by David Hemmings, the actor, the English actor. And it was the last film that Marlena Dietrich appeared in, and it was the last film that Kim Novak appeared in. And it was a complete mess. It, it was, uh, for example, um, there was a scene between David Bowie, who was the lead, who sort of sleepwalked his way through the entire film. And he had a scene with Marlene Dietrich. It was supposedly in Germany, and uh, Marlene Dietrich refused on moral grounds to go to Germany. So they filmed her in Paris, in, and David Bowie in Berlin, in the same scene. And this is the days before they had any sort of technical wizardry, that, and instead of attempting to sort of, you know, cut them into the same frame, they just cut from one person to the other person. So it, it, it just looked hideous. You know, every time he spoke, you saw him. Every time she spoke, you saw him. And I don't think the wallpaper matched either. It was one of, one of those. Um, but one of the sequences they wanted me to write was a, a big Busby Barclay extravaganza. And um, I, I never forget, they, they sent, I said, can I see the, the sequence? They said, it's been shot. 
I said, can I see it? They said, no. Which I thought was a very good start. <laughs> so, uh, I, I later found out that the film, the reason for the no was that the film had been impounded by German customs because they hadn't paid any of their bills. But uh, I, I got a no, but, but they said, we can play you um, a bit of the metronome that we used for the dancers. So I mean, literally over the telephone, I heard this <laughs> And that was it, and that was all I, my clue was. And they said, all, all we want, all we really want from you is three and a half minutes of Busby Barkley routine uh, that they're dancing to Black Bottom. But we wanted to become score at three minutes 20 because uh, the Nazi soldiers come in and they smash up the cinema because the, the star of the film is Jewish and they're, they're causing a, a, a riot. So we want the music to subtly shift into underscore at 3 minutes 24 or whatever it was. So I write this chart, as you know, Black Bottom is, you know, it's a, a peppy dance number to Silver Brown and Henderson and I'm writing it, but da 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 Da, da. And at 3 minutes 24, I start putting in dissonance and strange harmonies and sort of underscore rhythmic things. I remember, I haven't seen any of the footage, so I'm, I'm really guessing what it's like. People smashing up the cinema, so I'm getting really sort of low and brutal, and I've got a... Anyway, I, I finally get to see the movie, and comes to the scene where the premiere happens, and there's no film. It's not there. They go straight from the premiere of the film to the party after the um, event of the, you know, they've had the premiere and they're now having a party. And the party scene is people dancing, and they're dancing to Black Bottom. And I'm sitting there going, oh no, it's three minutes into this, it's going to become all hell breaking loose and mayhem. And if they don't cut away from it, it's going to be really trouble. And sure enough, 3 minutes 24 seconds, there's a girl standing there with a drink, dancing away, and the, and the track is going... <laughs> and you're watching it, and you think, what, what on earth is happening? So that was my introduction to film music. Um, Luckily, the next movie I did was uh, Life of Brian, which was a totally different experience. And uh, that really came out of some work I've been doing with Monty Python over the years. I mean, I, I'd always adored them when I was uh, a student and uh, watched them. When I, got, I first got the opportunity to actually play on one of their records as a saxophonist, and I went along, and it turned out that they, they didn't get round to using me, and uh, but we, we sort of hit it off quite well in the studio, and they sort of kept me in mind for future things. And I got a phone call from Eric Idle saying, I've written this little song for the end of Life of Brian, and uh, would you help me put it together? Again, it was going to be a sort of Hollywood musical spoof. So I went, went round and got a heard the song and made some suggestions and put in various elements into the arrangement. And then I had to find Terry Jones, the director, another Python. Uh, what, what you 
what you probably know or have to know about the Monty Python group is like, I guess, any comedy act or whatever that's been together for 40 odd years, uh, they loathe and detest the sight of each other. Totally. And that hasn't changed. In fact, some of the funniest, if you ever go for dinner with two of them, the funniest thing is just to hear what they say about the other four. So, um, I always remember John Cleese saying to me, uh, Eric Idle gives selfishness a bad name. <laughs> I thought was cruel but fair. But, uh, so, of course, you know, Eric's soul, Terry immediately hates it. And Terry says, well, it's stupid, you know, it's just not, it's just idiotic. And I said, well, yeah, maybe, but, um, how much will you need for the end of the film? He said, oh, 10 seconds at the most. <laughs> so I, I went back to Eric and said he wants 10 seconds of the song, and I won't tell you what Eric said, but uh, we record, recorded the whole song, and uh, I did the whistling on the end of the film, and uh, suddenly, 20 odd years later, I got a phone call from uh, Michael Palin, who said, are you watching a football? And I said, no, why? He said, put it on. I put on, it was a soccer game, it was the European Championships, and Germany were playing Denmark, and the entire crowd was singing Always Look on the Bright Side of Life. And I thought, wow, that's amazing. So there was a groundswell to get, get it back out in the public, and they re-released it as a record, and it went it top the charts, and then the rest is history, really. Eric, Eric then developed Spam a lot and did the show, and uh, we have a 40th anniversary Python show in London in October, which I'm going to be singing the Lumberjack song, dressed up as a Mountie. So, <laughs> I'm quite look, looking forward to that. That's part of the classic history of, uh, of comedy. So, um, but the next movie I got to work on, um, I went in as an arranger for, a, again, it seemed to be the pattern, for a well-known songwriter, a pop songwriter, who was going to write the score. And it was a, it was a Charles Bronson film with, um, it was Keanu Reeves' first ever movie when he was 17. And there was an eight minute sequence at the end of the film that involved three guys going to murder Charles Bronson and Ellen Burstyn in their beds while they were sleeping. And uh, so we all assembled in the room to hear what the pop songwriter had written for this, this sequence. And he got his acoustic guitar out and he went dum, 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 on the on the E string, you know. And everyone's looking at me, oh yes, this is great. You know? <laughs> and it got in about 40 seconds, he went dum, 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 and they start looking around, and there's one minute twenty, and it's going dum 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 dum. And about three minutes into this, um, I think the realization dawned that this was not actually going to be what the score consisted of. So uh, I then got a phone call saying, "Would I write the, the rest of the underscore?" So that that became my first sort of half score, if you like. Um, and a few years after that, I was at a reunion party for my university, and there was a chap there I'd worked with in advertising. I, I, 
I'd started doing a lot of commercials in the interim, and uh, I, I know on the note it said that I've done over 4,000 commercials. And that, that's, I only know that because my uh, advertising company was going public, and they had to declare what they'd done. And the, the, the boast of the guy who owned the company was that he'd done 5,000 commercials, and they found out he'd done 120. So, uh, but during those inquiries, they found that I'd done over 4,000, so they rang me up and told me that. But uh, there were some interesting ones along the way there. With, um, I remember going into a, an office once and they said, right, we've got this coffee creamer and we're going to use your cream in my coffee. I said, oh, okay, that's a good idea. I said, right, well, what we want you to do is we're going to show the black coffee and we want you to play You're the Cream in My Coffee on the black notes of the piano. <laughs> and then as we add the whitener, you play on the white notes of the piano. And I said, that's a fantastically brilliant idea. <laughs> uh, uh, yes, I mean, the first three notes of You're the Cream in My Coffee would, would destroy that completely. <laughs> Then I went into one company and they said, we've got this song by Duke Ellington called uh, I'm Just a Lucky So-and-So. I said, yes, I, I know it well. Uh, they said, well, it's funny, we have a version from 1945 and another one from 1952. He doesn't sing it as well on the 1952 one as he does on the 45 one. I said, okay, right. And they said, well, we've got another one from 1960. And he's got his voice back. He sounds much better. Fine. Okay, so you, you have three versions of Duke Ellington singing I'm Just a Lucky So-and-So. Okay. Uh, I'll go with the way he used to sound in 1945, because I know his voice did change quite a bit over the years. And that was that. And um, we had uh, oh many extraordinary ones. There was one where we were doing a beer commercial it was for Miller Beer for South Africa, and the, the tagline was something like Miller Beer, the beer for men, men drink it because it's wonderful, and four guys going, Miller Beer, the beer for men, and the, the, guys, the guys sitting there going, it's not, it's not macho enough, it's got to sound like Clint Eastwood. I'm sorry, it's got to sound like Clint Eastwood. Yeah, but Clint Eastwood's not really known for his singing, you know. I mean, I know he did I Talk to the Trees, you know, but that wasn't exactly sort of macho, was it? And this guy stood there for a minute and says, so you're telling me Clint Eastwood doesn't sing? I said, yeah, basically. He thought a minute and he went, ah. <laughs> <laughs> and then I had another one. I, I know I told this story last time, but hopefully not too many of you will remember it. But uh, I was in the studio, and I was the first person to arrive, and we were doing a, a commercial for hypothermia, for old age, you know, for looking after elderly people. And Dame Thora Heard, one of the grand dams of, of British theatre, and Mel Torme's mother-in-law, was doing the voiceover. And um, 
it was an arrangement of mourning has broken for flute and strings, with her saying, you know, don't forget to put a blanket on and put an extra bar on the fire. And I arrived maybe 40 minutes before the session. I was the only person in the studio except a client who was wearing that there's something very wrong expression that you get very used to. It's usually followed by, could you come in the box for a minute, please? So, um, so I walked past him a few times and said good morning, and he sort of acknowledged me half-heartedly. And uh, Eventually, he, he's sitting there going, <sighs> I'm thinking, well, it's obviously something else on his mind, so apart from what we're doing. So I said, uh, is everything all right? He said, you do know what we're here doing, don't you? I said, yes. He said, well, remind me of what we're doing. <laughs> I said, well, we're doing Morning Is Broken for old age care with uh, Thora Heard. Yes. Uh, is there something wrong? He said, well, I'm, you know what you're doing. Okay, uh, fine. He said, um, yeah, we're, we're fine, you know, we've got, we've got everybody coming. He said, well, he said, I'm not going to stand in your way. I said, oh, okay. He said, but one thing is really bothering me. I said, what, what's that? He said, how loud are you going to have those castanets? <laughs> I said, I'm sorry? He said, those castanets, how loud are they going to be? I said, there are no castanets. This, you know, it's flute and harp and strings, and they're not here yet. I don't know. I, I, he said, oh, oh. And at that moment, the engineer said, check number four, please, Steve. So that was that. Was that. Um, I then was very lucky, off to my di digression, I was at this party and I met a producer who said, we're just starting work on a film about uh, Joseph Locke, the Irish tenor. And I saw this interesting, my uncle was his conductor at the Palladium, Wolf. And he said, oh, I should put you together with the director. So I met the director who's first movie it was, and bizarrely, I'd scored a BBC Noel Coward drama called Star Quality that he acted in. So I, we, we met, we hit it off, and the great thing about the film, which was called Hear My Song, was that nobody on it had ever really done a full-fledged movie before. The director was his first film, the writer's first film, the main stars, it was their first film. The, the, the third lead it was his first film, the cinematographer's first film, the costume designer's first film. And when it came to the music, uh, it's probably the, that film, Funny Bones, which was the same director, I got complete carte blanche to do anything I wanted. And he was, Peter Chelson, the director, is, was so music driven that he would rewrite scenes to fit the concept of a piece of music that I would come up with. And that happened on, on both movies, actually, where 
I even had jokes in the film that, that uh, I told him, or incidents from my experience. That he said, oh, that's great, we'll put that in. And uh, he was very open. And what we did in that movie was very interesting from a musical point of view, I thought. And I haven't seen that many examples of it since, even. But uh, what I did was I, I took thematic material that I'd written and then treated it in about eight different stylistic fashions. So we had a sort of a, what I call a, a hot club of France group with uh, uh, guitars and violins. Then we had an Irish folk group with violins and guitars. Then we had a uh, full orchestra. Then we had two synthesizers, one of which was Nicholas Smith, who is now based out here. And then we had um, basically the, op the operetta side of the film, and we, we wove all those strands together. So a particular piece of score might go from heavily synthesized music into a swing band. And it, it sort of, when it finished, it, it, it created a sort of magical atmosphere and uh, got a lot of notice, I guess, and it's really what brought me out here in the first place, was people seeing that movie and, and being interested in the way I'd, I'd scored it. And I'd like to claim that I deliberately tried to write something in that sort of vein, but I really just went with what I, I thought might be best and worked work with the movie. And luckily, the first time out, I, I, I won the British Academy Award for the film. I thought, well, this is easy. You just do a movie and you get to award. <laughs> Somehow that, that wasn't quite, quite how it worked. And, uh, and then I had this marvellous spell of, of really that's continued to today of, of writing and arranging and uh, being able to get my big band going and keep my playing going, which I, was something I neglected a lot. But uh, I got back into that and last night with Mike Lang sitting here and we had a great time and uh, just you know enjoying playing and telling anecdotes and telling stories and writing and it's a real treat to be here today I hope you know you've enjoyed some of my experiences along the way thanks any questions yeah tell us about your, your musical uh, clips well, yeah, that's a, well, that's a twofold thing. I, I, when when video recorders came in, um, I did two things. I mean, I, I in, in those days they showed archaic musicals as, as they not RKO musicals, archaic musicals, and um, I, as you said, I, I would take the films and then cut out all the musical numbers and store them on tape. But I also started collecting uh, jazz video. I, w I went to do a movie in uh, Germany and got into the hotel and they were playing the, um, the Berlin Jazz Festival live on television, which I mentioned to the director. And he said, oh, we, we get jazz all the time. And it, uh, I'll send you some. So he sent me some tapes. And uh, after a while, of course, he got fed up with it. But I had a very good friend who travelled a lot in Europe and I said, wouldn't it be great if we could find somebody in every country who 
who take jazz and liked it. So he said, well, I'll, whenever I go, I'll ask. And he went to a club in Sweden and said, is there anyone here who takes jazz? And the guy on the door said, well, you're in luck, because the chap sitting at that table produced every jazz program on Swedish television since the 1950s. So suddenly, through the post, arrived this pile of unbelievable art archive footage that grew into a collection that I, I now have over 11,000 tapes. And sadly, my collecting colleague passed away a few months ago. Uh, he left me his entire collection, which I've now put into, I'm teaching at Sussex University a film music course, and I have a creative arts fellowship this year in the School of Humanities there. And we've established an archive in his name, which we're hopefully going to digitize. And there are gems that nobody, you know, if people knew about them, they, they've been forgotten. And I, it's changed quite a bit with YouTube. But uh, um, one interesting footnote is that uh, a tape came on the market that people could go into a shop and buy. And I said, well, this tape is from my collection. And someone said, well, that's ridiculous. You know, you, 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 uh, you, know, you can't just say it's your, your tape. And I said, well, I can say it's my tape because about four minutes in, the record button has got pressed. And there's a program that I remember accidentally recording into and going, oh, no, and switching it off. And there it was. So somehow the copy had gone down to someone else and uh, got released. But, with YouTube, a lot of the material is out there, but there's still stuff that's unbelievable of, of the great jazz performers in, in, in concert. Are the tapes deteriorating? No, the tapes have been fine. It's, uh, uh, once you put them on DVD, the DVDs are deteriorating. The, the storage, I mean, it reminds me of a, a very quick story that Jeff Emmerich, who uh, produced the Beatles, uh, archaeology album when he first became an engineer at Abbey Road in the days when they all wore white coats um, was asked to master a Beatles track overnight and they'd run out of their tape I think they used Ampex in those days so he went to the shops in London and uh, couldn't find anything he thought well I'll, I'll lose my job if I don't do something so he went into Woolworths and he bought a Winfield brand reel-to-reel -reel tape and went back to the studio and put the Beatles stuff on there for safety. The next day he came within an inch of being fired, you know, the, 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 the head engineer said, how dare you consign this rubbish, you know, this complete pile of rubbish, you know, our valuable music, da-da-da-da. Forty years later, he's remastering the Beatles. Every single track has deteriorated and had to be baked in the oven, except for the Woolworths tape, which was <laughs> perfect. <laughs> so it just shows you, I guess, that uh, there we are. I guess that's how I bored everybody into a state of total stupor. <laughs> so,
Thank you for listening to another ASMAC podcast. We welcome your feedback at asmac.org. This is Ian Freebairn-Smith on behalf of the board, and I would like to invite you to attend our events, including luncheons, master classes, and our annual Golden Score Awards banquet. For a complete list of our podcasts and DVDs, please visit our website at www.asmac.org. Many thanks to Larry Goldman of Balboa Studios for recording this talk and to Elliot Barker of Elbar Media for editing it for broadcast.